Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Mob Programming. I'm your host, Sam Livingston Gray, and with me this morning is Coraline Ada Emke. Um, yes, Mob Programming is the name of our podcast. I fully believe you, Sam, and I will not argue with you under any circumstances, and it has nothing to do with a tweet that you have prepared about me and given me a screen capture of that you will tweet if I disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Who else do we have? Oh, we have my good friend Jessica Care with us today. Thank you, Coraline. And I am thrilled to be here today with guest panelist, writer Timberlake. Thank you, Jessica. I am also thrilled to be here with guest panelist, Jacob Stobel. Thanks, writer. And collectively, we are greater Greater than 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 or equal to code. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Together we are not on cue. (laughs) (laughs) Totally works. So um, you might notice we have a couple of guest panelists today. We have Ryder and Jacob with us. How did we select Jacob and Ryder? Does anyone know? Well, as you may know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, if you pledge on patreon.com slash greater than code at any level, you get access to our Slack community. And this week, our guest had to cancel. So we decided to reach out to people in our Slack community and see who is interested in co-hosting with us. And we did a little lottery, and it was adorable. Mandy's daughter picked names out of a hat. And that's how we ended up with Ryder and Jacob. And we're so thrilled to have them with us. So if you want the opportunity to maybe take part in a future show or if you like the idea of being somewhere where you can talk about serious things and often do fun things like that, go sign up. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month and join us and join this wonderful community. So, And speaking of patrons, um, we want to thank Brian Karlovitz, who is our newest $50 sponsor. Our show is 100% listener funded. We are open to corporate sponsorships for the right companies. You can contact us about that. But at present, we are 100% listener funded, and we really appreciate people who donate at any level. But Brian Karlovitz at the $50 level is going to be a big help to us. So thank you so much, Brian. Jacob, we like to start the show with origin stories, and you haven't been on before. How did you acquire your superpowers? I work for a college right now. I was hired in a job that's a little bit different from what it is right now. It's sort of evolved. Basically, I was hired to be an Excel data entry person. Um, I was hired because I had some competencies in Microsoft Excel. And after working for about six months or so, I found that the systems that they were hiring me to, to sort of work manually uh, were really unwieldy. And at the same time, I had been learning Python and doing some neat things to sort of automate really boring tasks. And I sort of approached my boss and I said, you know, how would you feel if I created some software that sort of could automate what we're doing. Fast forward to four years later, which is now, and I'm managing a a Rails app that sort of has completely overhauled uh, this big data system that uh, for the department I work for. So I guess in a way, my origin story is still taking shape. I write software for most of my job, but my job title does not say software developer in it. I would like for it to soon, but that's uh, that's sort of where I came from. Wow. So you automated yourself out of one job and into another? Yeah. And then another? Yeah, basically. That is the best. I love doing that. If it gives you any hope, I have a a dear friend um, named Zach who pretty much was doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. He worked for a mass mail marketing company Mm -hmm. and 
hated the job. He was doing like data entry too. Started programming, and now he's like a pretty well-known front-end engineer. Nice. Uh, yeah, and he worked his he worked his way out of that job and um, automated his way out of that job. So there's definitely a path forward for that. That's really good to know. You know, I I definitely right am mostly self-taught. I also live in a small town, so in terms of like pairing up with other developers is sort of a, a thing that I have to drive 45 minutes for to meet other people. It's sort of yeah, it's, Arrow is your friend. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's just encouraging to know that because for standing on this side of it, it feels like a canyon that I'm hoping to traverse soon, but it it is a canyon nonetheless. Yeah, based on you work for a college and your title doesn't say software engineer and you yeah. evolved into this job, I'm going to guess that you're severely underpaid. <laughs> that seems extremely likely. Yeah, Plus thank rural you. area, yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to take that as a compliment. I'm, I'm going to be a dad soon, and I won't lie. Like, hope the money situation will hopefully improve as well because nice to have. <laughs> yeah. If you can't have sleep, you can at least have money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Parenting as a software engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's sort of it in a nutshell. It's like you know, ask me again in six months because it's I think exciting to hear. It's still yeah, it's still happening. But that's me. So, writer, how about you? How yes, did you get ma'am. into to software and become an? Um, wait, what did we become? An automation engineer at Salesforce. I started out. I had worked a number of jobs. I was pretty underpaid. Uh, and overqualified for, although, of course, you know, if you're not working, you're not overqualified for anything. So I had a rocky sort of beginning to mid career trajectory where I was just working at places. I was also inflexible about moving geographically. So I was working at places that met that criteria. Right. And uh, I was always attracted towards more autonomy, creative lines of analysis and thinking. I wanted to be a musician. I tried to be an artist a couple of times professionally, which is hard to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm sure some of you have experience with that. So, yeah, eventually it seemed like a profitable thing to uh, pursue. I actually came to programming by way of stock trading. I did stock trading first. And uh, programming is a little bit less stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Because you can always undo, right? You, you can, can always, always go back. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. Exactly right. Source control for the stock market. Uh. <laughs> Seriously, start, programming, we have the chat. ultimate power. We can save our game. The next person who says blockchain is fired, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing you said the next person, Sam. <laughs> Otherwise. Right? I planned that. <laughs> So I'm old enough that my first job in tech, my title was webmaster. Yes. 1994. Fire gifts. <laughs> um, I, I was more tasteful than that. I worked for an engineering company and I don't have a traditional background at all. I sort of do and I sort of don't. I started programming at seven and by like 12, I taught myself assembly language because you couldn't make high-res graphics go fast using any other language. So like I always knew I wanted to develop software for a living. And then I got to college and I took my first CS class and it bored the hell out of me. (laughs) Our semester long project was to write ATM software in C. Uh, uh, Oh, yeah. What am I going to do with the rest of my time? And I was like, if this is what software development is like, I guess it's not for me. 
Yeah. But I kept hacking on side projects and I went to work for this engineering company. I was actually doing media relations. I built them a database for tracking press releases and stuff like that. So I was still doing like kind of tech stuff, but not really. But I knew all the geeks because we all smoked together. So I had like a good relationship with like the software developers and sysadmins. And one day one one of them comes up to me and is like, I don't know if you heard, but the company's starting a web team. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, get on the web. That'll be great for the company. And then they said, what do you think that's going to do for your career? And I'm like, career? I don't have a career. (laughs) But that was the start of my career. Yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting. For my interview, I had to study how to do tables in HTML. (laughs) (laughs) I remember those. Those were useful. Yeah. As long as you knew how to slice your files appropriately. Exactly. That's excellent. I majored in physics in college because it sounded hard, which is like <laughs> the best interview answer. And it's actually true. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the only thing that sounded hard. And it wasn't hard, though. Um, <laughs> really? I had I a really hard time with it. <laughs> I stopped at bachelor's. <laughs> and uh, it depends a lot on your teacher. And I, I had, oh. we had good teachers. Oh, good. And. Yeah. But physics, like if you want to go into that, you just have to have like a huge passion for it because you're mm-hmm. going to go to school for 10 years and you're going to have to move around the country and look for positions and move around the world and and just hope to find something that lets you do research in that field. And I was lucky enough to get a programming internship through a friend of my aunt's during college. And I was like, wow, this is pretty sweet. Like, uh, I'm pretty good at it. It's a lot of fun. I got to program in this like mapping software, it was Arc Info and GIS and like make maps. It was super fun. Uh, this was for FedEx. And I was like, wow. And you get to go home at 530 <laughs> and there's no homework, right? There's no like <laughs> papers and projects hanging over you that you're supposed to do. I was like, I could totally do this. And then I found out that I could get like a job anywhere in the country with my bachelor's degree and make $40,000 a year. In 1999. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sweet, screw this physics thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I did. And, and that's uh, worked out. And I've been developing professionally for like 15 years. I I no longer have the property where I can go home at 530 and forget about it. Right. Uh, but that's a choice because I've discovered that software is like incredibly fascinating and the people in software are incredibly fascinating. So now I do not put it down. Well, okay, I do put it down at six o'clock, but only for a couple hours till my kids go to bed. Hopefully right. you're making more than forty thousand dollars a year now too. <laughs> yeah. Like at least forty five, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so nine to five was a luxury worth relinquishing for how cool software is for you. Yeah, well, it's kind of like that Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek thing, where you—it's very easy to say that you only work four hours a week if you redefine everything that you do as work as not work. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now that I'm an atomist, I'm doing the stuff that I used to do in my free time, uh-huh. and I get to do it full time, and so it really blurs the line now. Because it used to be I'd work until six, and then afterward I'd come back and like learn stuff and read and write blog posts and make talks, mostly make talks. Yeah. But now that's all the same thing. So I can work on my talks in regular hours and I can code on the weekends and it's just all blurred together. And yeah, yeah. The work-life balance doesn't seem like a problem when your work feels (laughs) like life. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of get the same thing working at GitHub. On the team that I work on, we're building like anti-harassment and community management features. And I'm basically getting paid to do the stuff that I was doing anyway, except now I have leverage over the entire open source world, um, which is a definite advantage. But yeah, yeah, I kind of have a dream job and like, I get all these recruiters who are like, oh, there's this hot new startup. I'm like, do you know where I work? Do you have any idea what I do and what that means to me? Thank you, but no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, what you were describing, Coraline, about the ladies' room at GitHub, right? That sounded really inspiring and like a wonderful and supportive place to be. Mm-hmm. It's great. My team in particular is amazing, but my interactions with like other people outside my team have been pretty good as well like really good with like a couple of like oh that was weird moments but overall really really good and the culture is definitely changing for those who didn't know what that reference is about about the bathroom on the engineering level at github hq there are post-it notes and lisa frank stickers and a bunch of sharpies (laughs) and we leave encouraging messages for one another and we ask each other questions and one person's even doing like this choose your own adventure story where it's like, (laughs) there's a sword in front of you. What do you do? And it's like, pick up the sword. And it's like in columns down the entire door. It's so cool. That's amazing. The game master is coming back and writing the bits or are different people also being the game master? No, the game master is coming back. Judging from the handwriting, it's the same person coming back and doing the responses. Is it all set in a bathroom? Like, you know, like... (laughs) No, it's actually, it's actually in like, it starts out in a laboratory, not a lavatory, but a laboratory. Ah, right. <laughs> a common place to find swords just laying about. Yeah. <laughs> Has anyone ever encountered a time, because I have, when at first the sort of work-life mixture was a good one, and at other times it didn't work out so well? This is the same job? Not this job, no. No, 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 no. I come from the arts world, theater specifically. And in that world, in nonprofit theater, it's like, why would we be doing this if not because we loved it? Like, there's no other reason, right? Yeah. Um, and I think what followed from that was, well, we we have to go to the bar together. We have to do X, Y, Z. We have to sort of live together, too. And at some point, that became... I don't think uh, essentially a bad thing, but it just turned out to not work for me. And I'm sort of wondering, like, when does it work and when does it not? You know, when when does that work-life blurring become negative? I think to a degree there's a Stockholm syndrome, right? Because it kind of sneaks up on you. You're like, oh, I'm new. I have to work extra. And then that becomes the new normal for you. And you sort of forget the fact that you're working 60 hours a week. And then the next new person starts and looks at you and thinks mm. that's the expectation. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the whole yeah, thing I just feeds in. Yeah. I had a job where people started doing commits on weekends. And I actually went to management and I was like, you need to tell them to not do this because this will become the new normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then did you have to explain why that was a bad thing? Yeah. And guess how effective it was. Uh, <laughs> how long did you stay in that job? Maybe 14 months. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprising, right? Yeah. Long enough for my stock options to vest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. I had the options conversation with uh, 
potential employer recently, and uh, I think I might have hurt some feelings when I basically explained that I value options at zero because there are just so many variables I don't even want to think about it. Lottery tickets. Yeah, I mean, I'd r- almost rather you buy me lottery tickets because I can, you know, calculate the expected value on those very easily. <laughs> I worked for about six or seven startups, but one of them actually did pay off, and it paid off pretty big. My strike price was like four seventy six, and the, I sold the stock at twenty four dollars. Nice. Yeah, that's just once. <laughs> right. So, uh, speaking of stock options, uh, I was listening to uh, another podcast called uh, Soft Skills recently, and uh, they actually had a really interesting episode. I think it was episode 10, Mentors and Stock Options. They had a really good explanation of stock options and how they work. So, if uh, you got lost when uh, Coraline said strike price, go listen to that. It'll clear a lot up. Sweet. Shout out to Soft Skills Engineering. That's another podcast that y'all might want to check out. If you're looking for a hilarious podcast that focuses on issues that software developers face, such as getting fired, pay raises, strategies for pushing back on bad ideas, and even stock options, check out Soft Skills Engineering. Softskills.audio. Awesome. So, Jacob, you said that you are working as a software engineer, but you haven't yet acquired a software engineering job in the traditional sense. So you are going to have to go through the dreaded hurdle of your first technical interview. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I've read about it and sort of thinking about it, trying to at least mentally prepare myself for what or emotionally prepare myself for it, right? Like it almost seems like a sort of a system of reproduction, right? Like we have CS degrees that they went through that ringer to get their job and want to feel like that is a reasonable expectation for everybody. So they're going to subject the same people to it. So we end up with more CS degrees. And yeah, it's a little scary. I've taken a few CS classes, but I don't know, put together a merge sort, you know, that would be tough for me. I think it's important to note that interviews are two ways. You will learn as much about what the company values from the code challenges that give you, you know, the abstract or the algorithmy and so on. Or does it reflect the work that you're actually going to be doing? Because like I have never had to invert a binary tree in my entire career. Mm-hmm. I have never had to write my own sorting algorithm because my language provides a sort method. So these sort of like quiz questions, they tend to be too CSE for me. Like I said, I'm a dropout. And if that's what the company values, I really don't want to work there, you know? Yeah, fair. Yeah, it sort of says that the engineers there haven't really thought at all about interviewing. And so they're just going to go back to standard nerd gatekeeping behavior, which is kind of horrible. Yeah, definitely. I think you can have some of that stuff in the interview. But yeah, if it's the main component, that says a lot, Coraline, definitely. Yeah. And like, how many times does an engineer actually write code on a fucking whiteboard? It just does not happen. (laughs) And if I'm asked, you know, it's like saying, oh, if you would design a programming language, what would it do? And do it on a whiteboard. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. And Uh I've actually turned away jobs because of the programming exercises they expected me to do. Like, Uh I got one exercise from a company that a very prominent Rubyist works for, where they're like, we want you to complete this coding challenge within one hour. We want you to do your first commit and then your last commit. We're going to look at the time differential between them. And I'm like, if you value me being able to write really, really good code in one hour, you're not giving me time to test. You're not giving me time to refactor. Fuck you. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm so sick of that. And that, that sets such expectations and sets the bar so high that people from non-traditional backgrounds get filtered out of jobs where they could really be a valuable asset. They could really, you know, bring some different thinking to the table. But because yeah. of this monoculture, it's like, well, I know these clever things because I have a CS degree and I took an algorithms class and I think yeah. everyone should think exactly like me and everyone should be a robot just like me. We're keeping people out that that deserve and have worked really hard. They deserve to be in. People who are good at different things than you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. As opposed to using the interview to make yourself feel smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and Sam? people who could help us solve cultural problems. So as the uh, representative of the computer science degree holding population, I would just like to say that all that shit is bull crap. What? I mean, so I had a really good time in, in some of my computer science classes. Uh, I did all the data structures stuff. Side rant, I did my data structures homework in Python first, and the homework took me about four hours, and I did it TDD. And then I would take the thing that I'd implemented in four hours in Python doing TDD, and I would just try to re-implement the solution with very few tests in C++ or Java. Nice. And I kept track of how long it took me. And the minimum multiplier from going from Python to Java was about 5x. Going from Python to C++ for me, the worst one was 9x. Wow. And I was like, why am I doing this? It took me four hours to do the homework. And then I spent like 25 re-implementing it just because they didn't want to read Python. What the hell? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I could rant for hours about how CS is taught, but I'll I'll give you the brief version. which is that there's a lot of valuable stuff in computer science and kind of feel for the people who are designing CS curricula because they're trying to serve people who are going to go into academia. They're trying to serve people who are going to go and like a big employer out here in Portland is Intel. So if you're going to go and do chip design, you know, Mm -hmm. you need a different set of skills perhaps than somebody who's going to go into web development. Uh, And so they're trying to meet a broad range of needs, at least in theory, (laughs) Yeah, But then they have this one-size-fits-all curriculum where they start everybody off with C. And C is, you know, it's pretty frustrating. But when I started in on C++, C looked really good. Uh, it was just <laughs> really hard to get my head around. And I'm like, why am I getting all these fucking null-pointer errors? I basically feel like there's an element of hazing that, that goes on. It's like, yeah. I learned this the hard way, and I feel like now I need to make you prove that, that you can go through this so that I don't feel like my time was wasted. Maybe that's a little unfair. I don't know. But that's how I feel about it when I'm super cranky. <laughs> yeah. Or me worrying that I have a CS degree and I, I learned a lot of C. And me worrying that learning all that C maybe isn't quite as valuable uh, as it is yeah. as it was 15 years ago. Right. So I have to assert this upon the world. <laughs> yeah. Inflict. And, which, and Inflict. it's like, you know, see, it's not that C isn't valuable. It's like you said, like it's incredibly valuable, but yeah. maybe just not in every space. I work in a, um, at a college and the department I work in is, is a teacher training. So we, we, we train school teachers and so my boss has some really, really interesting things to say about like education theory. And one of them, maybe you've heard it too, is the idea that we, we should be meeting kids where they are mm-hmm. and sort of at, that's the starting point and, and then sort of help walking with them as they go to where both of us want to be. And I sort of think about like the sort of 
like the the stack, like the tech stack, like like where we have the chip, at, the microchip at the very bottom, and then like we have like a lower level language like C sitting on top of that, and then like maybe we have like uh, an interpreted language like Python, like you were saying, Sam. And it seems to me that the theory of like, well, we need to start learning about what's going on deep down inside the computer and work our way up. It's really counterintuitive. We need to start with the user who's interacting with higher level things and then work our way down to sort of like, first we'll learn Python and then we'll learn what Python's doing under the covers. Oh, it's C. And then under that, we'll learn what, what's going on in the, uh, in even, for, even lower down than that. So it's like starting with the learner mm-hmm. and getting down to the technology as opposed to technology first. I think one of the advantages of that kind of approach, too, is that a lot of people who get into programming, they get in through PHP because they have like maybe they're in high school and they have a WordPress site Mm -hmm. and they want to customize it. So they learn PHP and they're like, oh, programming is pretty cool. So I think I'll go to school and maybe get this degree. And the first thing they see is C. It has no relation at all to their idea of programming and that's going to scare them away. And like the other day I was at Northwestern University, they have this night labs program, KN, not NI, which is a collaboration between the journalism school and the computer science department to like work on interactive storytelling in journalism. And one of the, it was like a round table discussion. I was the guest and one of the students, just a grad student was like, I think the thing I'm looking forward to most in professionally doing CS is applying the scientific method to everything I do. So when I do a feature, we'll do A-B testing on the feature to see if the implementation was good. Now, I had to tell him that happens on front end, like UX, UI stuff, but that does not happen anywhere else. And I've never had to apply the scientific theory to anything I do. I write a feature. Debugging. Yes. Yes, that's true. But in terms of like the features that you write, and like, oh, this product manager has two different ideas for how we can implement this. Let's implement them both and see, you know, which one really works. That simply doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So in short, I think that we should have computer science degrees for people who need to do computer science things. And we, have, we should have software development degrees where they're taught practical skills like Agile methodologies and pair programming and source control and things that you'll actually use in a job as a software developer. But all of those ideally would have a heavy component opinion of working with actual people. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. I actually lucked out and I got to take a class in extreme programming from uh, my the person who was my undergrad advisor and Jim Shore, who is well-known in the Agile community. And that was a super fun and super hard class. I actually almost quit it on the first lab day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a cranky partner or were you the cranky partner? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think we'd all agree that like there's use in sort of being exposed to not necessarily computer science, but thinking like a computer scientist. Yeah, totally. Like there's value in that. And it's how do we get to a place where we can sort of have both, you know, like we can, <laughs> can ask people just like, like, let, let's think about like, let's approach this scientifically and let's think about being nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I laughed because of how both like seamlessly intuitive that should be for us and how much it's not and how much that would really advance the field if that were the case. Mm-hmm. There was this great series of tweets um, last week 
that a lot of people participated in. And it was basically, I work at X doing Y, and I still have to Google Z. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really great because these were, in many cases, pretty prominent programmers, like confessing, admitting for the benefit of more junior people, hey, you don't have to memorize all this stuff. And hey, it's okay to look things up. And, hey, it's okay not to know everything. Don't be intimidated by not knowing everything. And I thought that was really great. Yeah, Yeah. I think that is great. And I think so often we feel like we have to know. I know this is a topic that y'all have discussed on the show before. But, like, there's this compulsion to know and not to be able to put out that you don't know and rest in that and have people look at you. You know, the invariable, like, 20% or 50% of tech audience who would look at you and say, wait, you don't know? Let's talk about contempt culture. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about contempt culture. It's toxic and bad. So for listeners who are new to this concept, Oren Shaw wrote a wonderful, wonderful blog post about uh, contempt culture, and she's uh, recently followed it up with a talk that expanded on some of those ideas that I have yet to watch. Um, but her basic thesis is that uh, all of this stuff that where we make people feel bad for their technology choices is essentially shaming people um, and discouraging them from participating. And it's a, it's a gatekeeping behavior. It's toxic and it's surprisingly pervasive. Like we were talking in the pre-call about using Python versus Ruby and the, how they're basically the same language, but there are some cultural differences between them. And like, even in that short conversation where everybody's friends here, like I could see that we were coming close to that edge of like, There's critique of the language itself. There's discussion of the differences between the cultures. And then there's like this judgment. And that judgment, I think, is the the thing that as programmers, we tend to do a lot more than I think we should. What I try to do is say, like, I used to be really contentious of JavaScript. But what I say now is that JavaScript doesn't make me happy. So I don't want to program in JavaScript. And that's not a judgment on the language. It's not a judgment on the people who enjoy the language. It's a reflection of my relationship with the language, which I think is not contemptuous and is perfectly fine for me to talk about. Yeah, you're not injecting baggage into it. You're not saying, you when you use JavaScript, don't you know that it does XYZ with types, right? Like you're not... You're not making any kind of judgment about the person who chose to use it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, we can make our opinions about us because really almost everything we do is not about the person we're speaking to or the person that we appear to be reacting to. It's almost always about us and our experience and our context. Yeah. And these languages are the same way. There's There's a link I like. I have taped to my door. People in the Python world know the Zen of Python. If you open your Python REPL and type import this, that's what you see. And it it talks about sort of values uh, for people that don't know that sort of are sort of constitute Pythonic code or idiomatic Python. So things like beautiful is better than ugly, flat is better than nested, readability counts. Um, And somebody wrote the Zen of Ruby, which when you put them side by side, you sort of see like these sort of counter arguments that are like, well, Python says that simple is better than complex. And Zen of Ruby says simple is boring. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, look at that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, yeah, this is very tongue in cheek. It, it's quite cute. <laughs> I, and what it sort of reveals to me, I, there kind of is a little bit of touching on flirting with contempt in this post. But I think what it's also revealing for me is like, 
we put forth these sort of ideas that are like, well, Python thinks this and like, how could this not be true? Right. But then like you put you you sort of make a counter argument to the side and like, oh, right. Like there kind of is a counter argument to that. Like, why does everything have to be simple? Maybe maybe there's some joy in writing something that's a little bit more expressive, for example. Yeah. Sam has just posted to the chat that it's trade offs all the way down. And I couldn't agree more. There's this dangerous and pervasive idea that there is a best way to do thing and that there exist best practices rather than uh, a best way to do thing in a given context or good practices or best mm-hmm. practices if you happen to have built the other stuff this way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the strongest statement we can possibly make that is fair is that something is the best tool for you right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. even just a good enough tool because right, totally. I'm sorry, you're not comparing everything no we haven't taken into account every possibility it's just good enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do a lot of artificial intelligence work on the side um it's sort of like a passion project of mine to create a program that understands and creates metaphors which is not a simple problem and people are like oh wow did you do that in lisp or oh wow what language should you do that in and i'm like ruby and they're like, Ruby's terrible for that. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> but I am fluent in Ruby and mm-hmm. I can execute on my idea without thinking about like syntax. Mm-hmm. So it is the most natural place for me to do it. It's the best job for me yeah. at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And once you built it in that, you could take it to a Lisp or whatever. It pains me that we don't have more people who are really robustly polyglot and mm-hmm. really robustly like unconcerned with what languages people should do i mean a little bit touches on what we were talking about a moment ago and what greg posted to the chat this sense of the role for a learner should be you adopt the context of the learner and you're this spotter at the side of the trampoline and you're making sure that your learner doesn't do any crazy talk that might hurt themselves with yeah that's a great analogy the more languages you learn, like without exerting, oh, that's just wrong judgment, then the wider <laughs> your perspective gets, yeah. Um, yeah. the more approaches you can bring and the more perspectives you can understand when you're teaching. Because, yeah, like Jacob said, as the teacher, it's your responsibility to adopt the context of the learner. Yeah. Someone mentioned the concept of gatekeeping, and I think that's worth yeah. coming back to. Gatekeeping is this notion that there are authorities with opinions. And you have to either agree with their opinions or get their blessing to have a different opinion before you can be right on the Internet. And yes. gatekeeping mm-hmm. takes a lot of different forms. Um, gatekeeping is a, is a term that's used in um, transgender with transgender people to reflect the number of hoops you have to jump through to actually get treatment and all the letters you have to get. Like for my passport, I had to have two letters from a doctor, which is just like ridiculous. Mm. But gatekeeping in tech, I think is just as insidious because you have these self-appointed leaders or self-appointed experts who maybe did something interesting five years ago or 10 years ago, or maybe have the luxury of being paid to do open source and their opinion matters more than everyone else's. And if they disagree with you and they disagree with you publicly, your idea is just treated as shit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also they're not being held to the same standard, Coraline. Their ideas are not being put under this microscope in the same way. Exactly. I was was thinking about this just yesterday. The concept that an idea, in order to get an idea under consideration and tried, you need two things. One, somebody has to have the idea. Two, a person has to present it who is listened to. 
So an idea needs a sponsor. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that sometimes when I have an idea, if it's really an important one, I won't always just throw it out there. I might go talk to somebody and let it be their idea. Somebody who's like most likely to be listened to. Like a virus. Is that that a gender dynamic? No, it's just politics. Just who knows who, who listens to who. I mean, it, and gender can be a part of those politics. Right. I mean, certainly there are some people that they're not going to listen to me or, or any other woman, but those, those are yeah. rare in my personal experience. It's because they're all at Uber. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and early, earlier, Sam, I was agreeing with Coraline that that's sad, but it is that way. And I think the more we can recognize that as a reality and overcome this knee jerk that, yeah, it's, it's terrible that it's that way. And I'm disgusted with the politics of it. And I don't want to be involved, the more effective we can be in some ways. The, there's stuff we can all do to help with that, which is when you hear someone's idea and you're like, wow, that might be a good idea. Or even if you don't have no idea whether it's a good idea, but you observe that it's not being heard, amplify, echo. I get so angry if I go on a rant and like, I have notifications turned on. It's like, so-and-so like this, like 52 people like this. I'm like, why didn't 52 people fucking retweet it? You know? (laughs) (laughs) I would really like to get back to the technical interview question. And in particular, I'd like to hear from everybody. What are the best technical interviews you've had? What is a good technical interview? It's a great question. I am very biased towards pair programming, so I'll just get that out there. But many of the best technical interviews that I've had, and I've had some good ones, um, involve pair programming with uh, somebody else. Uh, when I was at Living Social, uh, I interviewed with a bunch of people, including Rain Hendricks, and we sat down and we actually paired on a bug that he had observed in production, and that was really fun. Uh, And at the end, he's like, that's a really neat solution. Let's put that into the code. And there was another one where I was interviewing and the person that I was with, you know, sat me down and and I started writing a test for the first feature and I made it pass and I went to write the second test and he reached for the keyboard and I was like, wait, what? You want to actually ping pong this? Great. And I, you know, tossed it over to him and that was like a wonderful (laughs) surprise. I mean, yeah, it was for me, the best interviews are those where I get to learn a lot about the person that I'm pairing with. And for me, pair programming is the best way to do it. I have to agree emphatically. It's not what can you do in an hour by yourself with no guidance? <laughs> right. It's it's really the best way to find out, at least for me, to find out how somebody else thinks. Now, I have to acknowledge that this process is biased against people who don't do well in that environment. And I don't know how to address that. Well, I guess if you have a pairing environment, the best way to interview is pairing. I agree. Those are my favorite interviews, too, especially remote pairing, because then you don't have to fly a candidate in. You can get a good idea of what it's like to work with them without going anywhere. Yeah, we have these tools. Why not make use of them? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I love remote pairing. I like remote pairing like even better than pairing in person. How come? You got the personal space problem figured out. (laughs) Yeah, I love using remote pair programming tools when I'm pairing in person because we don't have to sit together and crane our necks to see the same screen. Right. Everybody has their own keyboard. Everyone is comfortable. And you really do have your own screen. Like sometimes I'm watching exactly what you're doing. I might switch over to Chrome and like look something up for you. Or I might be keeping my eyes on Slack. And it's like all of the input and the back and forth without like this pressure to look like you're staring at the same thing all the time. It's like not having to maintain eye contact in a conversation. You can focus more. 
I had a really great interview experience at GitHub. There was a take-home exercise, which take-home exercises are kind of controversial because they assume a certain level of free time, but this was relatively small, and I think it took me an hour to complete it. GitHub does anonymous reviews of the take-home assignment, so you're assigned this non-identifying ID and associated with a repo. The people who do the technical review have no idea who you are, what your name is, what your gender is, what your background is. It is strictly a technical evaluation. And assuming you get past that level, there's fake pairing where you have people watching you but not ever taking control of the keyboard. But um, walking you through like an actual web app, if you're applying for a web developer position, you're like, do you see any problems with performance here? And the interesting thing is to try our best to avoid bias, we have a rubric for every single question that gets asked of a candidate. So we say, if they talk about X, this is worth five points. If they fail to talk about X, but they mention Y, that's worth three points and so on. So there's no room for, I wouldn't have a beer with this person after work and kind of crap like that. It's all very well defined in terms of what kind of feedback you can get from them. And then best of all, in my opinion, is at the end, we actually ask questions about sort of awareness of social issues in programming. <laughs> nice. Because that, that's a reflection of like what the company values are now. I should also point out that I interviewed with eight people and six of them were women. And GitHub does its best to not have a chain of white dudes that you talk to. So nice. you're not getting eight chads. You're getting a cross-section of people. <laughs> from different parts of the company and from different backgrounds. And I think that really affects the overall experience too. Was that eight people in one day? I hope not. No, um, some of them are remote. It was about half and half. Okay, yeah. That's another thing that I find in a good interview is, I mean, two hours max in a day. Oh, definitely. And if you're doing it remotely, you can still have more interviews. Just don't put it all on the same day. And like, oh, that's so stressful for people. Yeah, and if you want to make good use of your developer's day who's doing the interviewing, they can do three two-hour interviews in one day, but they don't have to be with the same person. Yeah. And one other example of a good interview that I liked, they gave us some code to look at. It was like a little sample application. This was back in my Java days. So we had a little Java app. And there were some deliberately some bugs in it. There were deliberately some like icky code that there were plenty of opportunities for you to comment on the application. And so in the interview, once you came in, they gave you a feature and asked you to implement it, but it was code you'd already gotten to look at. And they also asked you like, what would you change about this code if you had time? And that's sort of like, it was low pressure getting to know the code, take as much time as you need. And then in the interview, can you talk about it? Not can you implement a ton of stuff in a short amount of time, but can you step through it? And then the actual thing they asked us to implement was small enough that there was no rush. I liked that one. That took a lot of prep on the part of the department, but it was good. But you got to reuse it. Yes. Yeah, but but actually they stopped using that interview because the code got out of date and it was nobody's (laughs) job to update it. Uh So that seems like a really good way to maybe find out if somebody has the skills in diplomacy to be able to critique code without, you know, doing the throwing up your hands and saying this is crap and doing a table flip and leaving the room, right? Yeah, that's true. Did anybody do that and got filtered out on that stage? I interviewed at this company with that interview. I didn't do interviews. Oh, okay. Uh, 
I think it sounds like a brilliant process and it evokes some of what you were talking about too, Sam, as far as like using code that is actually used, like when you <laughs> described your living social uh, experience and, and the other one, like those are, that's, that's critical. That's huge. It's so valuable. And Jessica, this just occurred to me for some reason when you were describing your experience, but if we could actually take it a step further and like in medical school and certain medical programs, right, they'll have actors who are playing the roles of patients and then they'll have this uh, number of symptoms on which you do your differential and so on. Could we have actors playing the role of like a recalcitrant engineer or some terrible boss and just have a scenario where we put you in and we see how you work in that situation? We see what soft skills you leverage. Uh, we get just a little more insight, not just the code review piece, but yeah, what makes you, you know, throw the table and rage quit? I think if a company did that to me, I would leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could be that a very prominent, large consulting company. Yeah. And they were like, okay, there's going to be this, this sort of logic test. And we're going to give you a sample test first. And there were like five, four or five candidates there at the same time. And they said, we're going to give you this test first and feel free to collaborate. So the sample test was maybe four or five questions. And basically, it was a state machine. And you had no scrap paper to work off of. And you had to trace through the state machine and perform the calculations on the numbers that were provided as inputs and just say what the output was. Yeah. So there's a lot to keep in your head at the same time. And there was this guy who was like, I don't know why I have to do this. I'm not applying for a technical position, but I guess I have to do this anyway. And he kept asking me for help. He was like, hey, what did you get on step seven of problem number two? And I'm like trying to keep numbers in my head, which is problematic for me personally anyway. I have, I have like an actual problem with that. So he kept interrupting me and I kept losing my place and I would have to go back and start over. So the um, the sample test was done. She comes back in and she's like, all right, here's the real test. You have one hour to complete as many problems as you want. And business guy continued to ask me questions. Hmm. I was like, I don't think we're supposed to be collaborating anymore. He's like, no, I, I think it's fine for us to collaborate still. And I had misgivings about that. And again, like these problems were even more complex. And so I was not able to finish very more of them. And I suspected that after the interview, and I didn't do well on that on that test at all, I suspected that after the interview, he was a plant to see mm. how well I would deal with interruptions. And that made me so angry. It's like a mind game, right? Yeah. Like, are you supposed to follow the instructions and then not get in trouble for not following the instructions? Or are you supposed to, like, collaborate because that's what a good programmer does? It's like, yeah. what's what's the thing that's going to get me the job? Because at the end of the day, that's what you're here to do. You're here yeah, to that, the job. Uh, where was the ethical review board on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does sound very stressful and, and suboptimal, definitely, Coraline. I want to ask you, had the company been up front about, hey, we're going to put you in a situation and we want to see how you respond, would that have resolved your misgivings or no? Potentially, it would have changed my interactions with the interrupter. But really, the nature of the test itself was stacked against me because, like, as an example, if I ask someone for their phone number yeah. and they tell me their phone number, I will remember the first two digits if uh -huh. I'm lucky. The rest just simply falls out of my head. I cannot process numbers in that way. So with no way to write down the interim steps and write down my interim numbers, yes. there was no way that I could have done, even under the best circumstances, I could not have done well in that test. 
Yeah. And, you know, as a logic test, I guess it was well designed. But for someone like me with that kind of like mental block, there was no way for me to pass it. And yeah. if that didn't relate to the work that was being done, it was not a good test. It produced a false negative. Yeah. My wife does HR. She sits in on every interview that her company does. And she was telling me that it's a really popular thing in interviews to sort of, you've probably gotten this before I have, to sort of do sort of some kind of theoretical to see what would a candidate do in a situation like this. And she was telling me that every version of that question is, is sort of just fundamentally just sort of bunk because everyone knows how to, how to cheat that, right? Everyone knows that, how to hack that question mm-hmm. because they answer how they know they're supposed to. Really, yeah. what you're really interested in is dispositionally, what is that person disposed to do when they're not under a microscope? Yeah, and everyone like, on the driver's test puts, I would not accelerate at a yellow yeah. light. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, so it's like, let's just remember that there are some limitations. Like, I would guess most interviewers are not psychological experimentalists. They can't, like, the, what the thing they think they're doing that's, like, so clever may actually not be that valid. And let's try to be, I don't know, let's try to be uh, transparent about what we're trying to get from people. But Jacob, we're scientists. (laughs) (laughs) I have zero beakers in my office. (laughs) My daughter has a uh, water bottle shaped like an Erlenmeyer flask with a straw in the top. It's adorable. Did she do A-B testing to determine what the best water bottle for her was? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think she got it as swag somewhere. Yeah. Sam, I agree with you that the pair programming piece is, is really important. That for me is the fundamental thing. If you're doing it with production code, that's even better. But just aligning as closely as possible the circumstances of the interview with the circumstances of the actual work you'll be doing yes. at that job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen uh, some companies espouse the idea that you should not interview at all and instead do like a one-week contract project with this person, which... You know, I can see where they're coming from with that. Of course, it also selects even more strongly for somebody who has the uh, free time to be able to take a week off of their regular job and come and interview with you. (laughs) It does. It does. Yeah. So ideally, I guess they would put you up in a hotel and they would pay for, no, there's no way to, there's no good way to do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you're unemployed, it's a mini vacation. But if you have a job and you're sort of stealthily looking around, like, I have a yeah. cold and it's going to last a week. Right. Yeah. Or if you have kids or if you're caring for a family member or yeah, pretty exactly. much any of a variety of other things, you have a disability. Yeah. Selects against a lot of people. Yeah. Which I mentioned earlier, the idea of a false negative in that logic test that you described, Coraline. And um, I want to talk at least a little bit about uh, some of the just sort of background radiation that I've observed around the hiring process. I see a lot of you know, every once in a while, I run across uh, an article about how to structure your interview process, uh, even in the days before medium think pieces were a thing. Right? And one mm-hmm. one very common theme that I see in those is this idea that your interview process should be uh, skewed in favor of producing false negatives because it is, according to these people, it's much better to reject a good person than to hire a bad one because hiring a bad person is uh, somehow ex- thought to be extremely costly. And maybe there's a an HR perspective on that. I'm not sure, but it seems to me like structuring your interview process in that way means that you're going to miss out on a lot of good candidates. And it means that you're going to miss out on a lot of diversity that would really benefit you as a company. 
Anyway, I just wanted to mention that as a meme that's out there. Makes you risk averse, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because the risk is you fire somebody and then they sue you because, you know, they thought there was an applied contract or something. Yeah. It's like you usually have more to lose from a toxic person than you, unless the person's great, um, have to gain by hiring a, a great person. You know, like yeah, one toxic person can take everything down. That's true. And I've seen that happen. Yeah. And that's certainly the perception it sounds like these HR departments are working with. Right. But say it with me, everybody. HR's job is to protect the company. <laughs> HR's yeah. job is to protect the company. I think, too, like if we introduce this notion of probationary period of like three months or something like that, where it's long enough that you can feel like you can safely leave your job. Yeah. And maybe three months is long enough to determine if you're a toxic person and to have an escape clause for the company where it's like, you know, we made some kind of mistake. You didn't meet all of our criteria yeah. for a valued employee. So we're going to try and find someone else. You know, maybe that would help solve the problem. I don't know. As a new person, I would have yeah. strong questions about what is not being said about some kind of writer like that. Um, you know, oh, like, yeah. That would have to be very explicit. Like these are our expectations yeah. and you'd have to have regular check-ins to see like how you're doing. You wouldn't want to be surprised at the end of three weeks or three months. Rather. Yeah. I, I think if there was a writer like that, I would be extra on the lookout for strange culture in that place. Because if I get a whiff of like, there are a company that's like looking to ax people left and right when they make one mistake, like, I'm like, well, I have a stable job now, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I've, I worked in one place where the lesson that I took away when they and I parted ways was that I really, really should have asked, what is the median tenure of your employees? Good question. <laughs> because turns out it was like two months. Ooh. Wow. Wow. And why is it what it is? Why do you think it is what it is? Right. To everything, churn, churn. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like we're saying it takes work to make the hiring process better. Yeah. Who knew? It's got to be somebody's <laughs> responsibility. There has to be one person responsible for making that experience like as effective and positive as possible. Yeah. You can't leave it up to, oh, you're a manager. Here, figure out what to do. This is an area of specialization. Yeah. And interviews can be, what's the word? Not traumatizing. That's a little dramatic. But people can walk away with hurt feelings after interviews. And then if they end up getting the job, like they're going to take that in with them when they start, if they start. Well, it's been really great discussion today. And Ryder and Jacob, I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. I think so the lottery. Happy I could join you. Yeah, the lottery turned out just perfectly. And we got some really interesting um, conversation with you both. And um, we want to thank everyone for listening. And we will be back next week. Have to remind you one more time that if you want to support us as a listener, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, pledge at any level, get access to our Slack community, which includes our guests. Our guests um, stick around and you can ask them questions. So if you feel like there's something we didn't cover in the podcast, you can get your questions answered, which is pretty cool. So again, thank you all. Thanks to all the panelists. Thanks to our guest panelists. And thanks to you, the listener. 